Good morning, church family. Today we're going to be finishing out John chapter 18. We will be in verses 28 through 40. If you would please stand if you're able as we read God's holy word. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Robert, thank you for the courage that you displayed this morning to stand in the waters of baptism and tell the, the beautiful story of God's redeeming grace. Um, we, in the first service, heard from Jay and Al Bradley their stories of faith in Christ, and now uh, Robert's, you heard his story. You might be thinking to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm this close to being ready to trust Christ. I, I'm, I, don't, man, I don't want to get up in front of everybody. I don't want to go do that baptism thing. Um, but Jesus is laying a claim on your life, and he's calling you to follow him and trust him. I want to encourage you to, to respond to that call. Uh, Robert just encouraged you to respond to that call. Jay and Al did the same thing. So if we can help you, in any way, think through your Christian faith. Think about what it is that you're, um, that maybe is keeping you from wanting to follow Christ fully, and we would love to do that. Uh, so just let one of us know after church that you're, or whoever you came with, you might come with a friend. I know they would be, if they're already uh, a believer, that they'd love to talk with you more about trusting Christ. So that's what the story that we're in is about. 
The Gospel of John is about helping us to discover faith in Jesus, to believe that Jesus is the Christ. John wrote his gospel for the express purpose of saying and commending to you that Jesus is the Christ and that he's worth believing and trusting and staking your life on him. And so that's where we are in our uh, series. And last week and the week before I was out, um, I do want to just go ahead and say ahead of time, if I fall asleep during the message, we're all in trouble. Um, I am a little tired. We had a great trip. Thank you for sending us. Thank you for praying for us. Me, Cam, Pastor Allen, and Pastor Michael. Uh, Pastor Michael was a huge asset to us in the villages. Uh, he really represented our church family well. Uh, we had a great time among the river people, and the work is growing there. So thank you for sending us and praying for us. Um, but I am I'm feeling a little bit this morning. So are you still awake, Alan? Cam, how are you doing? Look, if you guys sleep during the sermon, that is not fair. <laughs> like, some of the best naps you will ever get are during a sermon. So, just, you know, don't act like so. some of you bob a little bit, you know. I got some bobbers in here. You're like, it's okay. It's okay as long as you keep listening. It's good. So, um... If you are a guest with us, we're studying through John's Gospel, and we are in chapter 18 on page 904 in the Bible there in the pew in front of you. We'd love for you to pick it up and follow along. See, see if what we're saying from here uh, corresponds to what the Bible teaches and what the Word of God says. So, um, so in the last two Sundays, both Jesse and Vince have taken us through the betrayal of Judas, the arrest by the Sanhedrin, and the denial last Sunday, the denial of Peter. And uh, now in verse 28, Jesus is still in custody. Uh, this is the interrogation scene proper. So this is where Jesus is going to be interrogated by Pilate. And if you would, just pick up with me in verse 28. Uh, and I'll just read the first half of verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. Antiquity scholars tell us that it was fairly common for Roman officials like Pilate to begin his work at sunrise at 6 a.m. And probably by 10 or 11 a.m. to be finished with most of their work for the day. And so it's not uncommon at all for, for that to happen in a Roman official's life like Pilate's life. What's interesting is the Sanhedrin knows exactly when to do this and what's going on. And so they purposefully bring them uh, bring Jesus, the Sanhedrin purposefully bring Jesus to Pilate's headquarters when he opens for business that morning, very early in the morning. And they know that capital punishment cases were not allowed to be tried at nighttime, and they know that they don't have the ability to, persecute, uh, to uh, prosecute a capital case against Jesus, so they're going to need Rome's official help. And that's where we are in verse 28. Now, to me, the second half of verse 28 is where things really get interesting. Look at 28 again, and I, I think this has is, this is really gotten my attention. Uh, second half of verse 28, they themselves, so they lead Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. That's Pilate's, uh, uh, Pontius Pilate's palace, his home, his, where he's residing at this point. It was early morning. They themselves, here it is, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. And to me, that is just a 
incredibly interesting statement. Why is John telling me that? Why is John telling the story in this way? Pointing out that Caiaphas and the rest of the Jewish officials would not enter Pilate's headquarters for fear of being ceremonially defiled. I think he's doing two things. First, I think he wants us to see the hypocrisy. John, the gospel writer, wants us to see the hypocrisy of empty religion, of religious ceremony, in contrast to the true Passover lamb, who is Christ. And this is a classic example of deep irony in John, and it happens over and over again. How deeply ironic that the people of God could not see the cleansing agent of their sin for fear of being ceremonially defiled. They couldn't see the Passover lamb. So that's the first thing I think that John is doing. The second thing he's doing is he's setting up a dramatic scene that really invites you in as a listener, as a reader of the gospel. He wants you to see, uh, he wants you to see three different personalities at work here. He wants you to see Pilate, he wants you to see the Jews, and he wants you to see Jesus. And so Pilate ends up kind of going front stage, backstage, right? He comes out to talk to the Jews, he goes back into his headquarters to talk to Jesus. And he's kind of scuttling back and forth in this drama that's unfolding. And what John's trying to do is help you and I get engaged in the question, this is the question of the human predicament. This is the question every person in the world has to answer. Who do you trust? Do you side with Pilate? Or the Jews? Or Jesus? Who will get, who will really get your allegiance? Who's really on trial here? So there are three kingdoms. Here's the, here's the proposition this morning. There are three kingdoms that are constantly vying for your attention. Three kingdoms that are always competing for more territory in your heart. Three kingdoms that want to own you. The kingdom of religion, the kingdom of this world, and the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of religion seen here with, uh, in the life of the Jews, the kingdom of the world seen in Pilate and Caesar, uh, and the kingdom of Christ, of course, seen in Jesus. Let's think first of all about the kingdom of religion. And again, we pick back up on this idea I've, I've really kind of already started, which is in verse 28. I think you see the kingdom of religion at work in verse 28. The Jews, says John, were not willing to enter the Roman governor's palace because they would be ceremonially defiled before the Passover. A little bit of background for you that might help you. They had come, the Jews had come to a place of accumulating many laws and we learn this from the Mishnah and the Talmud. And what they had done is they had accumulated laws that would, would keep them from, um, from being defiled by being in a Gentile's home. So now there were ways around getting, you, know, you could be ceremonially cleansed if you went into a Gentile's home, but it would take seven days, in some cases longer. So there were ways that you could do business with a Gentile and then kind of work around that. Uh, if you were willing to be cleansed ceremonially. But these Jews do not have time for that. They don't have seven days. They're ready for Jesus to die when? Right now. So this is what's so crazy about it. The Jew, these Jews had become so scrupulous in their observance of the law that they could not see the very one to whom the law, the prophets, and the writings were constantly pointing who is Christ. 
they couldn't see the one whose sacrifice once and for all would affect an inward washing and cleansing, the blood of one lamb that would be sprinkled not on doorways in Egypt at the Passover, but on the doorway of every heart that would believe by faith in Jesus as the Savior. So here's what empty religion will do. Let me give you a couple things that are practical. Here's what empty religion will do for you, and you need to be careful of it. Even as a believer, even as a Christian, empty religion will blind you, verse 28. Empty religion will will blind you. You won't be able to see, as we just described. When you love ceremony and ritual more than the living God himself, listen, when you love ceremony and ritual more than the living God himself, when formal religious duties and obligations begin to take on a life of their own, then you won't see Christ. It will blind you. Empty religion will blind you. Secondly, it will make you presumptuous. Look at verse 30. This is really interesting. Verse 30 says, they answered Pilate. They're answering the Roman governor. They answer him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Look, we, we, we understand how this operates. Well, they're being a little bit presumptuous here. And that's what's happening. They become wise in their own eyes, the judges of what is good and what is evil, and they try to convince Pilate, hey, just trust us. Honestly, we're good guys. Trust us. This guy is the bad guy. So empty religion will blind you. It'll make you presumptuous. But here's the thing that I think is most compelling. It will make you a liar and a hypocrite, and you don't want that. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. It's not lawful for us to do this. Look, they would have gladly put Jesus to death if they were allowed to. But because of Roman occupation and because capital punishment was the job of the Romans only at this point, they're they're just playing into Pilate's. They're feeding Pilate's ego. We're not allowed to do this, Governor. We don't have authority to do this, but you have the authority to do this. As if they didn't really want to see Jesus tried and his life taken. So they play along, they feed Pilate's ego. We can't do this without you. Only you have the authority. Look, there's no justice in this trial. What John wants us to see is there is no justice in this trial. There's been no justice in the trial in the middle of the night in this, you know, thing going on with the Jews. There's no justice in this trial at this moment. They won't go into the palace in the name of purity. Look at this. They will not go into the palace in the name of purity and holiness, but they will gladly use a Gentile ruler to get what they want. That's hypocrisy. Just outright hypocrisy. What a strong warning for us as a people. Even as a believer, I'm just convicted and asking myself, don't assume that because you've trusted in Christ to save you, that religion is no longer a temptation for you. I mean, the human being, I think Pascal, maybe it was Blaise Pascal who said, every human being is incurably religious. So it won't necessarily, it won't be the case that just, just because I'm a believer doesn't mean I won't be tempted to be religious. The opposite might be the case. Like the longer you're a Christian, the more challenging it might be to not be religious. 
What kind, so we don't have time to do this this morning, but let me just give you a little homework assignment and ask you to consider over lunch or with a friend or in your community group asking this simple question. What religious temptations do I face? What religious temptations do we face as a church? What do I face? Uh, what kind of religious temptations do we face as individuals who have been Christians for any length of time? And then, of course, if you're not a believer, religion could keep you from becoming a believer. Religious temptations are very real. Here's the second kingdom that's constantly pulling on you and wanting you to live in its live with its currency, with its language. You know, every kingdom has currency and language, has an economy, has a political structure. You know, that's the way kingdoms operate. Here's the second kingdom that's pulling on you. It's the kingdom of the world. And it's in 36 through 40. Notice in verse 36, three times in this verse, Jesus says, my kingdom is what? My kingdom's not of this world. Three different times. Now, he says it the exact same way twice, but in the middle he also says it in a little bit of a variation. But three times in this text, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Making it pretty clear that this world itself is a kingdom, is an order. The Bible teaches us that. The rest of the Bible teaches us that. That this world order uh, is a kingdom and has the prince of the power of the air ruling it and um, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the world has a, an order, a kingdom driving it. The kingdom of this world takes different forms throughout the Bible. Think of the kingdom of Pharaoh and the oppression of God's people. Think of the Babylonian captivity and how oppression and hopelessness again uh, was at work among God's people. Here in John's gospel, the kingdom of this world is represented by Pilate and Caesar. And I think we should probably also throw here, throw in just for a moment, to be clear, the Bible teaches us, right? The Bible te we know the Bible teaches elsewhere that God has ordained governments. Uh, so governing authorities often, for, for good, for, good for, for civil order and for justice, and they often can be found doing that. That's what governments do. Um, they, have been in, they, they bear the sword for the sake of good and for civil order and justice, and often they do that. But it's also, it's also the case that this world order can be found to be abusing its power and authority. And that was the case with Pilate. That was the case with Pilate as he caved. You could just see Pilate caving to the pressure of the world. He used his power not for justice, but for political expediency, to give the people what they wanted. So you might remember back to John chapter 15 when Jesus said to the disciples, and, and this, whole, this whole theme of, of a world order is at work throughout John. You can see it. Um, I'm trying to think of Jesse or Vince, one of the two of you referred to it in the last couple weeks. I think Jesse. In, do you remember John 15, one really like, salient example of it? Jesus says to the disciples, the world has hated me for no good reason and they will hate you. The world has hated me without a cause. It won't be long from this moment in John 18 that the kingdom of this world will make a perfectly innocent man suffer crucifixion as if he were a hardened criminal. That's what the world does. 
It would be the most horrible injustice ever committed. One thing you should know if you're considering Christianity is that the cross of Christ is the most horrible injustice that was ever committed. That's the first part. I'll get to the second part in a minute. But that's what the cross was. The most horrible injustice ever committed because Jesus was a perfectly innocent man. So the kingdom of this world operates like this. Let me give you three things out of the passage that you will see to be characteristic of the world. It abuses power, dismisses truth, and ignores justice. Over and over again, you will see these things happening. Three characteristics of the kingdom of the world. Not always, but often it abuses power, dismisses truth, and ignores justice. Let's think about the abuse of power for just a moment. Throughout the whole betrayal and arrest and the interrogation, you will see military force being imposed. You'll see power being exercised in order to impose its will, to, to get what these to get what the leaders want, to get what the soldiers want, the trial, the beating, the flogging, the act of crucifixion, none of that happens apart from swords and soldiers and brute force. Power abused. The world is in the habit of abusing power. It's not that, it's not that there won't be times when justice must be served through the sword and through governing authorities. But the world is so prone to abuse its power and to abuse its muscle. Secondly, the kingdom of this world dismisses truth. Look at verse 38. Pilate says, what is truth? I think verse 38 is often put in terms of like apologetics or a philosophical statement as if sort of you just kind of pick it right out of the text there, like Pilate's just sort of scratching his head, you know, what really is truth? You know, something like that. That's not really what's happening here. What's happening here is, is, is Pilate is not waxing eloquent, it's more of a pragmatic frustration with the one who's standing in front of him claiming to be the Son of God. He, he hasn't seen this before. He's frustrated because Jesus is putting him in a, in a no-win situation. The world abuses power, dismisses truth, and third, it ignores justice. The world can do that. You can't do that as a believer, as a follower of Christ, but the world does that. The world ignores justice. It was, in fact, the greatest of all earthly injustices that Jesus was crucified as an innocent man. Even Pilate himself says what? Look at what Pilate says. I find what? I don't find any fault in him. I, there's, I don't see the guilt. He looks innocent to me. And yet he could ignore justice. These are characteristics of this world order. And the evil prince who inspires rebellion in this world likes it that way. Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, likes it that way. And he inspires the abuse of power. He inspires the dismissal of truth. He inspires um, uh, the neglect of justice. So I was just trying to think about how to illustrate that this morning. And instead of giving you an example for each of the three, separate example for each of the three, I want to give you one example that weaves all three of these together. 
I think racism, I think racism is that example. Racism is nothing less than an unbridled expression of the kingdom of this world. It abuses power, it dismisses truth, and it ignores justice. Think about that. Think about that. Just think about how powerful racism is and how it abuses power and is just perpetrating injustices one after another. I'm not, thinking, I'm not just thinking about what occasioned the Civil War. I'm talking about the present day of racism and genocide all over the globe. It's happening. It's, it's really happening all over the world right now. Not just between blacks and whites, but between race after race. One race thinking and feeling superior and acting in such a way over other races. Think about the racism and genocide all over the world. Think about refugees scattered everywhere because of the superiority of one race over another. I mean, this is real life. I'm even thinking myself about how growing up, I probably benefited from racism in ways I don't even know because... It was one or two degrees, there were one or two degrees of separation, and I, I didn't see it. I'm sure that's the case. That's probably the case for many of us who are not minorities. Racism has been on my mind recently because I just saw this movie called The Best of Enemies. Have you seen The Best of Enemies yet? Okay, so you should see it. Um, 13 or 14 years old and older probably, but watch it as a parent if you have a question. Uh, in my house, the age just keeps getting younger and younger. I don't know how that happens, but anyway. Um, the Best of Enemies. It's, it's the true story of racism in Durham, North Carolina in 1971. That's, this is my lifetime. 1971, Durham, North Carolina. The true story of two most unlikely people in Durham to ever have a conversation with one another. C.P. Ellis who was the president of the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, in uh, that regional chapter. He was the chapter's president in Durham in 1971, C.P. Ellis, and Ann Atwater, who was a civil rights advocate, African-American woman, uh, and C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater hated each other with passion. Um, you, should see the, you should see the movie, you should read the book first, but I know most of you aren't gonna read the book first, so enjoy the movie. Uh, but you should get the book and see whether or not, because there's a little embellishment at the end of the movie, but not a lot. And it's a powerful story. Uh, it's worth reading and seeing the movie, reading books, see the movie, if for no other reason than to be reminded of how deep the hatred and vitriol of racism really is and how it still lingers. It still lingers. Um, the beginning of the book has a little anecdote that's fairly recent, so listen to this. When C.P. Ellis died on November 3rd, 2005, November 3rd, isn't that today? 2005, so just 14 years ago. When, when C.P. Ellis died on November 3rd, 2005, a memorial service was held for family members at a local funeral home. Anne happened to arrive first she sat down in the front row and she began to grieve in silence. After a minute or two, she was startled by a cough next to her. She looked up. Excuse me, whispered a white man whose face was at that moment deep red. This service is for Mr. Claiborne Ellis, as he nodded toward the casket. 
Yes, Anne said, I know. There was an awkward moment of silence and the man cleared his throat. I'm sorry, he said, but the service is for family members only. I know that too, she said. The man glanced up at the exit sign, hoping she would take the hint. Well, are you a family member? Yes, she said with a long pause. Can I ask how you're related to the deceased? Anne stared at him for several seconds and said, CP was my brother. Without saying anything else, the man stormed out. The author of the book writes in her description, she says, she says to Anne Atwater, did you really say that CP was your brother to that man? Yes, that's exactly what I said because that's how it was between me and CP. And if you watch the movie and read the book, you will see her saying, image of God, image bearer. We both bear the image of God. Black and white bear the image of God. And there's this great line where she says, and it's her voice, it's not the, it's not the movie actress, it's her voice in the outtakes at the end. I've never met another person's blood who was not red. It's a beautiful story of reconciliation. You should watch it or read the book. Racism's not gone. It's the way the world operates. The world operates by, abu by abusing power. You should see how the Klan just abuses their power and intimidates people and threatens people and, and distorts justice. It's just... It's just by the time you get to the end of the movie, you're just sick to your stomach that this was allowed and tolerated. It's just the world operates. So here's what you should know about the world. The world is not your friend. It might act like it's your friend for a little while, but it is going to abuse power. It's going to dismiss the truth, and it's going to turn justice backwards, and it's going to eat you up in the process. Don't you trust the world? You can't trust the world. So, there are two kingdoms that are constantly trying to get at you. It's the kingdom of religion and the kingdom of this world. There's a third kingdom that's also competing for your heart and your soul. And that kingdom is the kingdom of Christ. And the kingdom of Christ is always there. Whether it's through an amazing sunrise that God's trying to get your attention, or whether it's through a family member, or whether it's through a work situation. The kingdom of Christ is always making its appeal to you. But the kingdom of Christ will not, like the world, impose itself on you and force you to do it its way. That's not the way the kingdom of Christ operates. The kingdom of Christ will not be, God will not coerce you. He respects you. He's not going to coerce you. He will draw you. He will soften you, but he's not going to coerce you. Pick up in verse 33 for the kingdom of Christ. Uh, bear with me. I'm going to use some of Vince's rollover minutes that we got last week. Thank you, by the way. Uh, I, know, I know what time it is, but hang on. I got one more point, and this is the best part. You can't leave now. Look, pick up in verse 33, backstage where Pilate is interrogating Jesus. 
are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers with a question. Who told you to ask this? Now, Jesus is not saying this because he doesn't know who told him. Jesus full well knows who's been scheming and working and doing all this. What he's, he, why is he asking? He's asking because he wants Pilate to have a chance to see himself in this moment. Who, who have you been talking to? The Sanhedrin had obviously been trying to convince Pilate how dangerous Jesus was. Here was their political play. If they could convince Pilate that this Messiah wannabe wants to be the king of Israel, well, the king of Israel is surely going to be a problem for the king of Rome, the Roman Empire, right? Caesar's not going to tolerate any competing kingdoms. Caesar's asking for everybody to, to play in line with his kingdom. And so if they can convince, if the Jews can convince Pilate that Jesus is an upstart revolutionary and he's going to create problems politically, well, then that's easy. That's their play, and that's what they're after. In verse 35, Pilate asks him again, what have you done? Why are they calling you a king? Now, this time in verse 36, Jesus answers, but not with a simple yes or no. He launches out into the deep end. He's like, my kingdom is not from around here. I'm not from down here. I'm from above. This is a theme that also runs throughout John's gospel. I'm from another world. I'm from another place. My kingdom is not from down here. I came from God who sent me to bring the kingdom of heaven back to earth. That's why I'm here. If my kingdom were of this world, I would fight like the rest of the world. If my kingdom were of this world, I would fight you. We would fight right now. We would fight with swords and clubs. If my, this is what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 36. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting so that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So in contrast to the world that abuses power, dismisses truth, and ignores justice, Jesus and the kingdom of Christ embraces humility, embodies truth, and effects justice. You'll know you're in the kingdom of Christ when you start seeing humility embraced, truth embodied, and justice served. Let me just roll through these quickly and we'll close. The kingdom of Christ embraces humility. The kingdom of Christ fights a different way. It fights a different enemy. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but rulers and authorities of this present darkness, the forces of evil. This was, this was Jesse's point at the beginning of chapter 18 when Jesus told Peter, put away your sword. Again, that's what Jesus is saying in verse 36. We don't fight this way. In the kingdom of the true king, our enemies are not flesh and blood, and our weapons are not swords. Now, this does not mean that the civil order does not have the right to bear the sword. That's a sermon for another day. I can't do that right now. We do need governments, and we do need authority, and we do need police, and we do, so we do need a military. I'm not saying that. That's a different discussion. But I'm talking about as a personal disciple of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is modeling. He's showing us exactly how the kingdom of God operates. Jesus, in the kingdom of Christ, or rather, in the kingdom of Christ, we learn that our enemies are not flesh and blood and our weapons are not swords. Jesus could have resisted the mob without a sword. I mean, he just stands there and, and the soldiers fall to the ground. He doesn't need a sword. What's he doing? Jesus, I, I love the way that, uh, that Jesse described this 
a couple weeks ago, you know, Peter, Peter closes his hand tightly around the sword ready to fight. Jesus opens his hands in service and in willingness. And he opens his hands to eat and share a meal with his disciples. He opens his hands to sing and praise. Uh, he opens his hands to pray to the Father in the garden. He, he opens his hands in submission to the Father to allow the betrayal and the arrest. Uh, forsaken by, we just were singing this, forsaken by a traitor's kiss. He's open-handed. I mean, he lets Judas, he lets Judas come all the way in and embrace him. He's fighting a very different way. And he opens his hands when he dies willingly on a cross. Yeah, Jesus opens his hands and dies willingly on a cross. And we model our lives according to this kingdom. The world models its life through pride and intensity and get what you want and impose your will and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And, and the kingdom of Christ doesn't operate that way. We serve the dirty by washing feet. We eat with brothers and sisters and we show hospitality. We pray and we sing together. We submit to the will of the Father. Jesse went on to say, we lay down our lives in sacrifice for others. And there's a thousand ways. If you start really getting serious about reading your Bible, uh, embracing the gospel, you will see a hundred thousand ways by which you can fight. But your fighting is a very different kind of fight. We fight subversively because a soft answer turns away wrath. It's the harsh word that stirs up anger, right? Christianity is about discovering those things. So embraces, the kingdom of Christ embraces humility. Secondly, it embodies truth. Verse 37, the world dismisses truth, but, but Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. Look at this in verse 37. You say that I am a king. And... And by the way, that, that's, that translation is a little bit tricky. You say that I'm a king. It almost sounds like Jesus is not sure, but you say that I'm a king, so let's go with king for now. That's not what he's doing. It's, he's saying, you say rightly that I am a king, because for this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. The kingdom of Christ is not just something that's believable and true. It is like, it's the kingdom of truth. There's no greater truth than the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you want to discover life and truth and purpose and happiness, it only comes through Him. That's what Pilate, uh, that's what he is saying to Pilate. For this purpose I was born and I've come into the world to be the King. I am Christ the King. That's what he's saying. But my kingdom is about to look very different. I'm about to go die to inaugurate this kingdom. You've never seen this before. I love the end of verse 37 because I think here we see Pilate really is the one on trial. Pilate has to decide. Because everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, Jesus says. Everyone who is of the truth listens to the voice of the Son of God. Are you listening to the voice of the gospel this morning from God's word? Are you willing to believe Jesus, that he really is the Son of God, 
and like Robert and like Al and Jay to say, you know what, I'm tired of letting other things keep me from yielding my life to the claims of the Son of God. Everyone, listen to this, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What a call. What a gospel call this morning for you to hear and receive. Here's the third thing and we'll close. The kingdom of Christ affects justice. You want justice? Look, I want justice. Don't you go through every week of your life feeling injustices? You hear about a friend, you experience it yourself. Everything from a simple squabble at home in which you think you're the just party and you've been mistreated to significant legal implications where you and your family feel like an injustice is being perpetrated. All the time, justice is, uh, the, the question of justice is on the table. Don't you want justice in your life? So here's what Christianity says. Christianity says the, the way to f- start to discover justice is to deal with it personally first and realize that if God were to treat you with justice, you'd be in serious trouble. Look again at these words, I find no guilt in him. Look at these words from Pilate, I find no guilt in him. Could that be said about you? It can be said about me. No, it can't be said about anyone in this room because every person in this room is guilty of one thing after another before God, not to mention the number of offenses we've created with each other. So the first place to start with justice is that the kingdom of Christ came to effect justice in your life and in my life. And here's the beautiful mystery of the gospel. The beautiful mystery of the gospel is that through the horrible injustice of the cross, God will make every wrong right. Every wrong that's ever been perpetrated against you and every wrong you were ever part of against others. There was no other way for justice to be satisfied than through the perfect suffering of an innocent man. Only God could do this, that's perfection. Only man should do it, he's the guilty one. Therefore, the God-man is the only one who can do it. He's the only one whose innocent life could, be trade, could trade places with your guilty life and it satisfy God. That's why, that's why Jesus is talking about the wrath of God back up in verse 11. Uh, uh, I've gotta drink the cup the Father has given me. If I don't drink the cup, nobody goes free. Listen to the hope of the gospel today. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's it. There's no other way for you to get righteous. For you to get justice, there's no other way. You say, but I have been good most of the time. Most of the time's not good enough. Only Jesus could survive the just wrath of God. This is so amazing. Guilty man, innocent man, trade places. Innocent man feels the wrath of God. Guilty man goes free. We should pray that we will live 
in the kingdom of Christ in such a way that our lives will never abuse power but only just embrace humility, really embody the truth, and then finally effect justice, which starts with understanding the gospel ourselves. Would you pray with me? And let's ask God to help us today. Oh, Lord, we long for justice. We long for justice to roll down like streams from Bent Mountain. God, we long for justice. Would you let it start with us? We want to see justice and mercy. Oh, Jesus, we want to flood this room right now. In fact, if you're a believer, just pray this way quietly for a moment. Jesus, thank you for stepping in front of the wrath of God for me. Teach me about justice and righteousness. Help me to embody truth. Oh, God, help me to embrace humility when everyone around me is teaching me to be filled up with pride and promote myself. Help me to embrace humility. And if you're considering Christ today, why not just pause right now and say, God, help me. Show me, teach me. Lord, these are our prayers. In the strong name of Jesus, who is powerful to save.